Last week, we finished uh, studying the fourth chapter of the book of Ezra. That said, if you would, please open your Bibles and find your way to the fifth chapter of the book of Ezra. Last week, we finished chapter four. Today, we begin uh, where we left off with Ezra chapter five. Now, as you turn to Ezra chapter five, let me remind you about the historical context of this book of scripture. Uh, the, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are these narrative books inside of the Hebrew Bible that record for us the era of Israel's history known as the post-exile. Uh, if you're reading from the very beginning of the Hebrew Bible, you come in the first book of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Genesis, and you meet the great patriarch Abram. And God calls Abram to himself. He renames him Abraham, which is like a plural of Abram. Uh, he makes Abram into Abrams because Abram is going to make a bunch of children. It's a part of the promise, the covenant that God gives to Abram, that he will have a progeny, that his progeny will prosper, and that that prosperous progeny will go to a place, the place of promise, the promised land. And in the promised land, they would uh, be established by God and they would become a blessing to the nations for the redemption of the world. And so Israel's established in that land. Israel, the children of Abram and Isaac and Jacob, they're established in that land. Uh, through a series of events, they uh, don't walk in a holy manner before their Lord. A part of the covenant that they have with God uh, through the prophet Moses entails that as they are in the land and faithful, they will prosper. As they are in the land and walking in unfaithfulness, they will not prosper. As a result of this covenant with Moses, they are placed under exile. They're booted out of the land. Because of the promise made to Abram that is unconditional, they, they will be brought back to the land. God's promises to Abram will be totally fulfilled. In fact, the sermon series, we're calling it Faithful to Fulfill, and we're studying God's faithfulness to his people. Even when they are wayward, when they're prone to wander, he brings them back. This era of post-exile is a bringing them back to the land. They, they were wiped out. Assyria, the empire of Assyria, wipes out the northern uh, tribes of Israel. Babylon comes in and wipes out the southern tribes of Israel. And Babylon takes them back to Babel, to Babylon. And there they live for uh, approximately 70 years. At the beginning of our, our, our service today, we read from the prophet Jeremiah. We read about this, this period that, the, that was prophesied, and now in, now in Ezra, it's coming to an end. The 70 years has run its course, and now it's time to go back to the land. In last week's message, I, I, I likened this experience of, of people living in that time to the Tulsa massacre. Last week was the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre, in which you had violent mobs just, just destroy a section of Tulsa, known as the Black Wall Street. And it was violent, it was brutal, it was, it was horrific. And, 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 and I, I likened it to if you lived through something like that, like you, your dad was shot, your house was burned down, your church was burned down, your business was burned down, your family moved and said, enough, buy Tulsa, and they moved to California, and you grew up in California, and you heard stories from your grandparents or your great-grandparents talking about Tulsa, but you're, you're born in California. You're, you're a California person, right? And then one day a, a prophet comes to you and says, it's time to go back. You go back. I'm not from Tulsa. All I know are horrible stories of what, you know, my great grandpa went through there. I have no interest in going back there. So too for Israel, having gone through this exile, now you have a generation of kids who grew up in Babylon, 
They went to Babylon High. They got Babylonian girlfriends or whatever. They don't want to leave. They don't want to go back. They, wh why would we want to go back? Ezra comes and calls the people. Zerubbabel comes and calls the people. It's time to go back. The exile is over. So in the book of Ezra, in the first four chapters, we've been studying how they come back to the land. When they come back to the land, one of the first things they do is they build an altar. And so we had a, a full sermon that was devoted to understanding what altars are in the ancient world and especially inside of the Hebrew Bible, the significance of building an altar. And, and, and after building the altar, they come and they build the temple. We had a whole sermon exploring the, the meaning of, of the temple and its significance in the story of redemption of God's, God's people and, and its significance up to the ministry of Christ and its significance in this age. And I'll remind you of some of those points with regard to templeology as we uh, want to understand and study the temple so that we get its historical significance. Ezra is a book of history. It's a narrative. And where we left off, we, we, we saw the people, we saw them, they built the altar, as I said, and they're, they're going to build the temple. And where we left off, some drama comes, and it prevents them from building the temple. That, so where we left off in our study last week, the temple has been halted. What they were called to build has been halted. And we read in the text where we left off, draw your eyes, chapter 5, verse 1, when the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied. When the, when the prophets came and prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So where we left off, right now, we step back into the text, we're back into this historical narrative, and we are told about the prophets. We are told about Haggai, as we say. Maybe some of you grew, grew up hearing his name Haggai. Uh, I would hear that as a kid. Sometimes people would say Haggai. I, when I went to grad school and learned Hebrew, I realized, like, it's not Haggai, and it's not even Haggai, it's Haggai, Haggai, uh, but that's just too hard to say, so we're just going to roll with Haggai, because Haggai, uh, just, you got, it takes a lot of throat action in there, but Haggai, Zechariah, Zechariah, we'll just say Zechariah, but Haggai and Zechariah are prophets who were introduced here in chapter 5, verse 1. They're Neviah as it says in the Hebrew, they're, they're the prophets. And the Neviah have hit Navivi that they bring. The prophets bring prophecy. Now, when we hear the word prophecy, we might think about like things in the future, eschatology. You know, prophets, they, they tell you about what's going to happen in the future. They foretell things that are going to take place in the future. The important thing to understand, though, with regard to Neviah, Hebrew prophets, yeah, they foretell, but the vast majority of their prophecies, their oracles, aren't foretelling, they're forth-telling. They're talking about issues that are right in front of the people. They're, they're prophesying about their life that's right in front of them in that moment. They're forth-telling. They're speaking forth the covenant of God. They're speaking forth the, the Mosaic mandates. They're, they're speaking forth the mitzvahot, the commandments of God, and they're applying it in that moment to the people. We, we like the foretelling part, admittedly, the eschatological stuff that's talking about the last days. People typically will just focus on that, but that's, say, 10% of it. The vast majority of it is foretelling. So here we meet Haggai, and Haggai is going to bring us a foretelling of the Mosaic mandates, of the commandments of God. He's, he's going to call the people into a self-examination. Haggai wants the people to stop and to consider what's going on. Uh, what's going on? Remember, they stopped building the temple. That's what's going on. And Haggai is going to come and say, hey, you guys, 
Do you see what's happening? He's speaking forth. Do you see what's happening? You, you need to, verse, uh, verse 5 and verse 7 of Haggai 1, he, he uses this phrase, you need to consider your ways, okay? And that's the title of today's message, consider your ways. Consider what's going on. You've got, you've got Ezra 5 right in front of you. Draw your eyes back at the, at the, at the ending of chapter 4 there where we left off. Verse 24, chapter 4. Then the, the work of the house of the God in Jerusalem was ceased. And it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. They stopped. They threw in the towel. They called it quits. And keep in mind, they're not, they're not quitting on any old thing. This isn't like, you know, not finishing your New Year's resolution to get in shape or whatever. This isn't quitting a hobby. This isn't, I always said I'd get my black belt and you didn't or you dropped out of school. This is, this, this is the temple we're talking about. Templeology. Remember what we said about the temple. Remember the temple significance. Remember the significance of the land. As I shared with you in the ancient worldview of the Jewish people, that land was believed to be paradise. That land where the temple was, that was believed to be the Garden of Eden. It was, it was paradise. We, we, we read in the Hebrew Bible in the beginning when God makes man and places man in paradise. And we read about how humanity rebels against God and they lose paradise. Humanity is placed in an exile away from paradise. And humanity loses the presence of God to be in his immediate presence, what we read about in the original paradise. So the temple, to freshen your minds on some templeology here, two points, paradise and presence. The temple looks back to paradise. The temple looks back to the presence of God in that paradise. And now God has brought them full circle back to the land. And the part of building the temple is this restorative hope of, of things being renewed, of, of paradise lost being brought back, of God's presence being brought back, of God's promise. Paradise, presence, promise to Abram to be in the land, to, 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 to draw the nations to himself. The temple is about paradise, it's about presence, it's about promise, a final P. It's a porthole, which we discussed. It is, it is an archetype of the heavenly temple above. It is a place in earth where the, where the heavens and the earth join together, where God manifests himself, and where God is at work in restoring fallen humanity. So, so this isn't giving up on learning a second language or getting a black belt or finishing that degree or whatever. We're talking about paradise and presence and promise and a, you're building a porthole for the heavens to come into the earth and you're going to stop that? That's a big deal. You're the only people on the planet who can do this because God called you to be his royal priesthood and only priests can build such a sacred structure. No one else can do this. Only you can do this. You've been brought back out of exile. You've been brought to this place for this. In Ezra 4, 24, the work of the house of God stopped. The work of the house of God stopped. Paradise, presence, promise, porthole. Let me add another P on there, pad. It's God's house. It's God's pad. It's his dwelling place. The, the house that King David wanted to build when they were in the land before Assyria and Babylon wiped them out, when, when the great King David was there, and they had the tabernacle of God, and David looks at his own home and says, why don't we have a pad? Why don't we have a house for God? Oh, David, David would be rolling in his grave at Ezra 4.24. David would have killed to have built the temple. 
In fact, that could be taken as a sarcastic, dark Bible joke because David actually was prevented from building the temple because he did have blood on his hands. He, he wanted to build the temple, but God said, no, you, you are a man of war. You're not a man of peace. You cannot build this place of paradise, this presence, this promise, this porthole, this pad, because you're not a man of peace. And so God raised up David's seed, Solomon, to see it to fruition. The Solomonic temple was the one that was destroyed. And now Ezra has come back and we're saying, we are going to restore this. We have been called for such a time as this. So Ezra 5, verse 1, where we left off, we read about Haggai. Haggai, And now what we need to do is we need to leave the narrative and we've got to jump over to Haggai. So turn in your Bibles, find your way to Haggai. You're going to turn to the right and find the book of Haggai. It's a, it's a little book. We're going to begin in, in, in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to study Haggai. And then we're going to have to study Zechariah, because chapter 5, verse 1 says this is when Haggai and Zechariah happen. So we're going to pause on the narrative, and we're going to go over to the prophecy, the foretelling. There's going to be some cool foretelling in there, too, particularly with Zechariah. He, gets, he, he does some eschatological stuff that gets really fun. But we're going to see in today's message largely just a foretell. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. Draw your eyes at the text. We read, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came. This is the first point that is on your outline. If you have the outline printed out, it is word comes. The word comes. We have revelation. In fact, revelation, that's the first sub-point under the first point. Word comes under that revelation, if you're taking notes. Revelation is the word that we use to describe when something is revealed that you otherwise would not know. Something that you would not know, something that was, was previously hidden from you, but now you see it. Now it has been unveiled. In the Greek New Testament, the word apocalypsis, revelation, the book of Revelation, apocalypsis. It's an unveiling. It's an opening up of the curtain so that what you otherwise would not know, now you know. Revelation, the word comes. Revelation comes at really telling times inside of the, the, the storyline of the Bible. Revelation comes when, when the people are undeserving of it. And this is telling because it drives home the grace of God. In this case, it, it, it had been over 15 years timing-wise. Where we left off in Ezra, at the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, they stopped building. And from the time marker here, we see in the text that it's been over 15 years they stopped building 15 years ago. They, they do not deserve to have a prophet come to them. You guys are not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You've been sitting on this for over 15 years. Revelation often comes, though, in these moments so that God can drive home the point, you don't deserve this, but I'm bringing this to you. Revelation is an act of grace. 15 years. The timing is telling. In addition to telling us about God's grace, the timing also serves to tell us about God's power. You see, the rebuild would not come by their muscle or their might. It would come by the Lord. As the prophet Zechariah will tell the people in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Zechariah 4, 6. A people who were reduced to ashes have been brought back to life, and they are going to rebuild one of the wonders of the ancient world, the temple. Yeah, that doesn't just happen. That, that's, you know, people who've been, uh, who've been reduced to ashes don't come back and build ancient wonders. That, but, but what's impossible for man is totally possible for God. 
It's, it's, it's no thing for God to do this. It's no thing for God to resurrect the dead. It's no thing for God to bring the heavens to the earth in a temple. It's no thing for God. As my kids would say, it's easy peasy lemon squeezy. It's no sweat for God. He's omnipotent. He has all the power. He never has to charge his power either. There's no USB port on the side of Yahweh. He never runs out of power. Speaking of powers, look at verse 1. Who is the earthly power? We read of Darius the king. Dor Yahweh Shehmelech. Darius the king. Darius was the third king of the Persian Empire who rose to power amid a power struggle for the throne. He was a brutal military leader. Darius led military campaigns in the Indus Valley, in Babylon, in Eastern Europe, in Greece, in Egypt. In fact, Darius wore the crown of Pharaoh, of Pharaoh of Egypt. He actually wore the crown of Pharaoh of Egypt. This guy is powerful. It's worth noting that Darius actually introduced a new universal currency at the time that was known as the Derek. The Derek became a transnational currency that regulated trade and commerce throughout the empire. Archaeologists have unearthed Derek coins. And, and if you even Google on your phone Derek coins, you'll see these images of a king. Some of them have the king holding a dagger. Some of them have the king holding, you know, bow and arrow. He's a force to be reckoned with. Everywhere you go in the empire, there's his face. There's his power. He's got the dagger. He's got the arrows. They're pointed at you. Mess with the bull. You get the horns. Don't mess with Darius. But then the word of the Lord comes through Haggai. God comes with revelation. You think Darius is in control? <laughs> He's not. I, I got news for you, Haggai says. Darius isn't in control. You, you think he's in control? No, no, no. He's a puppet in the, in the hands of the providential God. He's a servant of the sovereign. God raised up Darius for his purposes. It is worth noting that Der the Derek, this little piece of gold with his face and his power printed on them, the Derek actually continued past the time of Darius all the way up to the reign of Alexander the Great. Uh, so you're getting up to three, 330 B.C., and, and around 330 B.C., when Alexander the Great comes on scene and starts putting the kibosh on everybody, they take all of the derricks and they melt them down and they recoin them as coins for Alexander. I, I note that because it's just a reminder that the kings and the kingdoms of men all come to an end. All the nations come to an end. All earthly powers come to an end. But the word of the Lord stands forever. Draw your eyes back at the text. In the second year of Darius, on the first day of the six months, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, to Joshua, the, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, let's, let's pause. My job is to explain this. Okay, let's appreciate the moment. The moment that the word of the Lord comes, this first point, word comes, this is huge. It has been some time since the people had actually heard from a prophet, as I noted, uh, Haggai is the first of the three prophets, okay, that we're going to study. Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. He's the first one who steps on, on the scene. So the silence of over 15 years of them not doing anything is now broken. The word is uh, spoken directly to Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah. He's been appointed by Darius. And as I said, God raised up Darius for his service and his purpose, which we see God orchestrating everything according to his plan. Darius certainly thought that he was in control. Zerubbabel is a part of that control of Darius. You see, the Persian Empire had its grip on its territories, and they would have politicians and powers that they placed over those territories as a part of keeping everything in check. 
So while they were letting the Jews go back to the land, they weren't exactly giving them the land. They had every intention of controlling it. Zerubbabel works for Darius. It is worth noting that Zerubbabel is a Jewish man, but Zerubbabel is a Babylonian name. We know that he was Jewish because his name is listed in 1 Chronicles chapter 3 as a descendant of the Jewish King David in the line of Sheltiel. Going, uh, going back to something I've emphasized in previous sermons here, the post-exiles had integrated with Babylon. I went to Babylonian high, got the Babylonian girlfriend. I don't want to go back. Why would we go back to Tulsa after what they did to our family? California's nice. I'm not going back. This Jewish man has a Babylonian name, the name of his oppressors. He, he bears a name, a name from his oppressors. But is that at a point in history where they've just forgotten that history? And now his liberator, God, Yahweh, brings a word. Joshua is also addressed with this word. He is the high priest, so he represents the people before God. Hence, the word comes to him as a mediator, and that word extends then to the people, for Joshua is the mediator. If you take the time to look up 1 Chronicles 3 that I referenced, you'll see uh, Zerubbabel's lineage. And then if you make a pit stop in chapter 6 of that book, you'll see Joshua's Ancestry.com. And there you will see with Joshua that his father's father, his grandpa, was Sariah, who according to 2 Kings chapter 25 was executed by Babylon, specifically under King Nebuchadnezzar. So that's around when exile begins. His grandpa was killed by Nebuchadnezzar. Now with this in mind, as you see Joshua's name in the text here, you see Joshua's dad, Jehozadak. Jehozadak should be the high priest of the temple. But Jehozadak watched the temple crushed before his eyes and was sent into exile. Jehozadak's ministry was never realized. And now it would be through his son. Just as David wouldn't realize the temple, but Solomon would, so too for uh, Jehozadak, Joshua's dad. He wouldn't realize it, but for Joshua he would. You've been raised up for such a time as this. His, his son had his work cut out for him. This ministry was going to be painstaking. The ministry of rebuilding is always painstaking. The word comes is the first point. The first subpoint is revelation. The next subpoint is rebuilding, this painstaking work of rebuilding. When it comes to religious bodies, it is much harder to rebuild than it is to start from scratch. In fact, I was recently with a successful and seasoned pastor who uh, was just talking about this with me. And, and we see statistics of this, but just the, the first person kind of story about how hard it is to take an existing body and rebuild as a pastor, as opposed to just starting from scratch, picking your team and going. Inheriting a people and a place with its problems, that, that's a difficult challenge. Rebuilding is always difficult. Starting from scratch, I mean, it's great. You, you get to pick your team, you get to screen your guys, you get to say, this is how we're going to do it, this is how we're going to roll, as opposed to, you know, taking on something with all these dimensions and complexities. As a, as a young pastor, I inherited the problems of the leadership before me, and I inherited the people uh, before me. The first decade of ministry was hard, to say the least. In the case of Haggai, he has it hard. He's inheriting this thing and going, i, I got to work with this. Uh, as we saw in our recent studies of the post-exilic historical narrative in Ezra, the people were divided. There was a good number of unhappy people in the community who were literally drowning the joy out of the people. They, they, were, they were there to suck the life out of the room. Added to the internal drama, you have external drama. There were physical enemies who had successfully politicked to cancel the people, specifically the rebuilding of the temple. Those enemies created these false narratives, and they ran around behind the scenes slandering and lobbying to get others into the spin zone. 
They smeared their name in the mud. They managed to get the Medo-Persian governmental powers on their backs that scared them. So they stopped and they threw in the towel. And they, 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 they had, they're at this point where they, uh, we're not going to rebuild this thing. It's been 15 years now. They, they didn't have energy to fight because the internal drama had sucked all of it out of them. In our previous studies, we saw how unhappiness can discourage the people of God and derail the mission of God. This week, we will see the discouraged and the derailed who have traded the joy of doing God's work for doing what actually makes them happy. That's what we're going to see. And we're going to see, spoiler alert, that the people were happy spending their time on their stuff, and that's why the house of the Lord had sat empty for 15-plus years. They, the people were more concerned about their homes than they were the house of the Lord. It seems the enemy was just an excuse for them to call it quits. Draw your eyes at, at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Hang on for just a second here. This is significant. If you have your own Bible, you might want to circle this phrase, the Lord of hosts. It is the Hebrew name Yahweh Sabaot. Yahweh Sabaot. It, its literal meaning is the God of the armies. It is a military title. It is also a royal title. And the military title and the royal title are of both significance. It's significant because they need a military defender. They have an enemy against them, so they need that military muscle. You think Darius is big? Well, here comes Yahweh Sabaot. Here comes the host of all the armies of the heavens, and he's in your corner. You will not fail. I'm calling you to rebuild, and I'm reminding you of who I am, Yahweh Sabaot. You, you're you're going to do this. I have your back. And I have, I have, I have no, I'm under no short supply here. The armies of the heavens are with you. Yahweh Sabaot is a military title. It's also a royal title, which is significant because Israel's enemies have been politicking with the government to smear their names in the mud. And so now you've, you've got people in this spin zone. They've been politically spun and cast in, in, in this particular die. And everyone's saying Israel's this, Israel's this. And now you have Yahweh Sabaot, a royal, a royal representative. For you, he, he's going to defend your case. He's going to deliberate. He's going to judge. Dozens of times inside of the Hebrew Bible where we see this name right here, Yahweh Sabaot, being used, it's in the context of judgment. The, the royal representative who comes and brings judgment. God had no doubt judged the enemies of his people. That's a part of the Abrahamic covenant, to bless those who bless them, to curse those who curse them. As well, about a dozen times the title Yahweh Sabaot is used in the context of redemption. Indeed, it's, it's so fitting here because both redemption and judgment are on the line. Israel is being redeemed and Israel's enemies are being judged. That said, God comes with a judgment for his people as well and no time is wasted. We're only two verses into the prophecy and wham! Thus says the Lord of hosts, look at this. This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. This is... This is this is what you say? You say, it's not time? Really, that's your excuse? It's not time, Haggai says? Oh, oh, now's not the time to rebuild. Is that, is that what you've been telling yourselves? Now is not the time to rebuild? Well, I have a word for you from God, Yahweh Sabaot. Now is the time. Carpe diem, seize the time. 
You were raised up for such a time as this. You are there to rebuild the holy temple. Paradise and presence and promise. And you're, you're there to bring this. You're, you've been called for this. You are there most importantly and intimately to worship God. And in your worship of God in the temple, you will draw the nations of the world to come and hear of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Redeemer God, who offers his forgiveness to the earth that has rebelled against him. God has liberated Israel for his praise brought them to the land that they would gather and they'd sing to him and praise to him and sacrifice and give and love, but they're not about their father's business. And so now Haggai comes, revelation. God's going to break the silence of 15 years. Rebuild. It's time for you guys to rebuild. Third subpoint: reality. Before Israel would rebuild the temple, God needed to rebuild them in their faith, and he's going to do it with a prophetic reality check. Draw your eyes back at the text, verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, verse 4, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Here's a reality check for you. You guys are sitting around watching your home improvement shows. You're making your Ikea runs to hook up your, your pads, and you're not focused on his praise. You're focused on your pads and not his praise. The priorities of the people are out of place. It seems that they were prioritizing panels, it says, and not the praise of God. The Hebrew word that is used here for panels is the same word that is used in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 9, to describe the blinged out, lavishly opulent interior of Solomon's temple. We live in a culture that values paneling. I grew up watching, I'll date myself, Robin Leach's show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Do you guys see that one? Right? Every episode ends with what? Champagne wishes and caviar dreams, right? And then, then, yeah, you know, I used to, you know, read Word Up magazine, Salt and Pepper and Heavy D in the limousine, too. And then years later, we'd have these TV genre shows that popped on the scene, uh, home makeovers, this old house, extreme makeover, home edition, flipper, flop, property brothers, love it or list it, design on a dime, fixer, upper, so many shows about hooking up our panels. There's shows about finding the perfect place to live. There's shows about finding a place to rent. On HDTV, there's a show called For Rent, and Jody Gilmore guides desperate, hopeful renters to find the place that is just perfect for them. And they go, oh, this is nice. Oh, this is nice. Oh, I like this one. Oh, this is nice. There's even shows about vacation rentals. Netflix, Stay Here. Netflix, Instant Hotel. Matt Landau's A Sense of Place. Vacation Rental Potential. Getting Away Together. There's, we've got endless TV shows that are about paneling. Our culture spends so much time watching others live life instead of actually living our own lives, let alone serving the Lord with the life that he has given to us. And in watching these shows, we develop, if we're not careful, now hear me, nothing is wrong about watching television shows about living spaces or having nice stuff. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But if we're not careful, it takes away our joy. It turns into coveting. It robs us of contentment. Covetousness is the desire that is often concealed. Uh, it's kind of hard to see. When you have covetousness, even, even within oneself, it's hard to note because it's so devious, covetousness is. One of the ways that you can detect covetousness uh, objectively is by noting what makes you happy. You see a person get happy about stuff, you, you, see, you, you see what matters to them. By looking at contentment, also you can, you can see uh, what, what people are content with because contentment works against covetousness. Another way to see uh, uh, covetousness is through generosity. People who give, people who serve, they're typically not prone to covetousness. 
Now, in the case of Israel, they're not giving and they're not serving the Lord or his house. They were busy blinging their stuff out, making their homes look nice. Their desires for their homes had derailed the duty of God's temple. If anyone can understand the text, I think we can. So we don't want to stand over the text and go, oh, look at them. I can't believe they would do that. Our culture is obsessed with the picket fence American dream. North American culture, our economy, thrives off of the consumption of home goods and homes. If anyone can understand this, we can, especially in California, for Christians who sacrifice to be here to serve Christ's church. You can go just about anywhere and get a bigger bang for your buck. A bigger house, a bigger yard, a better school, better politicians, bigger, better, anywhere besides here. But what happens if we all do that? What, what happens if we all do that? Well, what happens is what we see here. The temple is just not being built. They abandoned the mission of God, and they were just focused on their stuff. Look at the text. Notice the repetition of the word time. Verse 1, circle time. Verse 4, circle time. Haggai reminds them what time it is. It's post-exile time. You were brought back to life. You didn't deserve to be here, and yet you are here. It would be like a man who drank his kidneys to death and a friend who comes in to rescue him and gives him one of his own kidneys, now turning back to the bottle of booze again. What are you doing? I didn't give you my kidney so you could kill it. I gave it to you so you would have life. God raised Israel back up to life for service, for worship, for mission. What are you doing? You're, you're, you're messing with your paneling. Understand that worship exists, that mission exists where worship does not. They've been called to mission for purposes of calling people to worship. The temple was a worship center for the world. Israel was to be the priesthood to, to mediate between fallen humanity and a holy God. But instead of being priests, they're being interior designers. Instead of reading the word of God, they're reading home decor magazines and looking at Instagram. And Haggai says, verse 5, consider your ways. Mind you, it's not Haggai who's saying it. Verse 5 begins with what? Now, therefore, thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. This is God speaking. Consider your ways. So we move from the outline. The first point, the first broad point is the word comes. Now we move to the ways considered. He, he wants them to consider their ways. He's forth-telling to them, what are you guys doing? And telling the people that it was Yahweh Sabaoth, specifically using God's name, Haggai here makes it really clear that he's not talking about some generic God. He's using God's divine name. He's speaking of God's identity. I need to tell you who I'm talking about. This isn't any old God. This is the true and living God. Here's his name, Yahweh Sabaoth. And so, too, this is why we preach the way that we preach in this church, why in our sermons you will hear in, in every sermon, you're going to hear me start talking about there's one God who eternally dwells in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Because I don't want anyone to come and hear me talking about God and not understand the God who I'm talking about. If my wife is just talking about me but never says my name, you kind of go, yeah, there's something weird going on there. Why doesn't she say his name? Why does it... Why does she want to, like, identify? He's, that guy right there is my husband, you see? The God, the God that I'm talking about today is the God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. The God that I'm talking about today is, is, is the God who sent his Son to become a man and die at the hands of men in order to redeem them. That's the God that I'm talking about today. 
And, and that then in saying that in this sermon says to those who are listening, who have ears to hear and eyes to see, we're not talking about any old God. We're talking about the true and living God. Words matter. We must define them. This word before us, consider, is a word that deserves to be defined. Look at the text. Consider your ways. If you're reading in the NIV English translation, it says, give careful thought to. If you're reading in the New English translation, it says, think carefully about what you are doing. I really like that rendering. In the Hebrew, it's a really interesting phrase. Samu libab kim al darakekim. And it literally means something like this. Lay down your heart. Lay down your, yourself, lay down your ways from the path, okay? Simu libab kim al darke kim. It's like, it's really hard to move it over into English because it, it, it's dealing with taking your heart and getting it off the road that you're on, the path that you're on, the journey that you're on. You are, Haggai saying, on the wrong path. You need to stop. You need to change course. This is our word, repent. You need to repent and you need to come to God. The God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. You need to come to Him. The God who's Yahweh Sabaoth. You need to come to Him. You need to stop. You need to look within your heart and, and pull that off of the road that you are on. Now the problem with looking at our heart is what the prophet Jeremiah told us in Jeremiah 17, 9. That the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? It is beyond cure. It cannot be understood or comprehended by mortal man, but for immortal God, it can be conquered, it can be cured, it can be understood. The call to consider, the call to lay down and look within, is a call to see what you cannot see. It's a call to do what you cannot do. It is a call to surrender, to tap out, to let go, to lay down, to repent, to cry out to the Lord, Lord, I need you. I'm looking at my panels, and I can't stop looking at them. I just like these panels. I need you to rescue me from me. I need your forgiveness. I've wasted 15 years of my life not doing your business. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. I need your power. If we're going to build this thing that you've called us to build, if, if we're going to do this work, I need you to change me. The holy God, I need you to make me holy like you are holy. I need you to humble me. Because otherwise I would be left looking at my paneling. If we are going to do this, it will be, as I read from Zechariah 4, 6, and I'll read it again, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. By their power, they're getting nowhere. By their power, they'll spend another 15 years looking at their panels. Draw your eyes at the text of Haggai in verse 6. You have sown so much, but you harvest little. You eat, and there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Your pockets got holes in them. You put money in it, it pours out. You, you, you wanted to get a little buzzed off of that drink, which is sinful and you ought not to do, but you don't have enough to pull that off. You eat and you're still hungry. You are getting nowhere, at least nowhere that matters to God. Sure, they may have thought their panels were posh, but those panels will pass. They'll go out of style or they'll fade with time. Jesus warned his disciples, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. What is the point of your stuff? You can get all you can. You can 
can all you get. You can sit on the can. Someone's just going to kick your can, steal your can, or you're going to die with your can in your hands, and you can't take that can where you are going. Whether up or down, you can't take it with you. But you know what you can take with you? Heavenly treasures, Jesus says. The rewards of God for his people, the rewards of God for his people for forsaking this life, forsaking the paneled homes, the picket fences, for forsaking all of that and saying, we are going to serve. We are going to grow where we are planted. We are going to give ourselves to your work, O oh God. I fear that for many, this is their best life now. Whereas for God's people on mission, the best is yet to come. Amen? The prophet Haggai speaks of how they've sown so much. Of course, to sow is to plant seed. Notice the prophet says nothing, though, about reaping. You're sowing for stuff. You're not reaping. The point here is about satisfaction. You are not being satisfied. That is the next sub-point on the outline, satisfaction. While businesses in our culture promise customers satisfaction guaranteed, the fact is you will never fully be satisfied by the things of this earth. Life, life, life is not about acquiring things, if you haven't learned that already. Life is not about having. Life is about being. There is a, a, a lie in our culture that if you have this or that, you'll be happy and you'll be satisfied. If only I could get this, then I'll be happy. But this and that is never enough. This sort of satisfaction in the earth will, will, will never give you full satisfaction. On this note, you will want to fill your life with, with experiences more than filling your life with things. That, that is so important. Please hear. Live your life for experiences, not things. You want to have stories to tell, not stuff to show. Happiness is found not in having a bunch of stuff. It's found in being content with the little things that you do have. There's a saying that true contentment is not having everything, but being satisfied with everything you already have. A satisfied life is better than a successful life because our success is measured by others, whereas satisfaction is something that we have actually more control over. You see, I can't control what you think about me. I'll never be satisfied if my satisfaction comes from what others think about me, let alone from what I have. I can't control either. I, I, what I have can be taken or lost. What you think about me can change. You could go from liking me to not liking me. I can't control what you think. I can't control what I have. But I know the one who controls all things. I know the one who will never leave me, never forsake me, never change his thoughts towards me. He will never change the thoughts toward me. For before the foundations of the world, he chose in Christ to call a people unto himself. This is our gospel of this triune God who looked at sinners and said, I will make you sons. And he will never reject his children. He will never draw his back on his children. The fact that Israel's back in the land is showing us his faithfulness. The fact that he sat with them as they looked at their panels for 15 plus years and still comes to them shows you he will not change his thoughts, his thoughts towards you to those who are in him, to those who have been forgiven. You can never outrun his grace. There's nothing that you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing that you can do to have him love you less. For it is in Christ, the one who died in your place, that his love is given and guaranteed and secure. You can come to him now and say, God, forgive me. And he'll do just that. And his thoughts will never change towards you. He's immutable. It makes no sense to even talk about his thoughts changing. He is ordained to call a people to himself. 
And his people Israel in the text, he doesn't, he doesn't come to them and say, I'm so done with you. I, I pulled you out of exile and this is the thanks I get. And, 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 no, he comes to them and he saves them yet again. He saved them from exile. Now he's saving them from their satisfaction in earthly things. For Israel, true satisfaction will be found in God, in embracing his will, in doing his work. Just think of the satisfaction of rebuilding that temple. Just think of what, what they were doing in that historical moment. I think about the historical moment that we have in Inglewood right now with the building of the Ram Stadium. Right? Just think about the guys who worked on that thing, who can tell their kids and their grandkids, I built that. You know, every time you're driving down uh, Manchester and Prairie, trapped in insane traffic, I have no idea how that's going to work, but you can sit in that traffic and say, your great-grandpa built that thing. Your great-grandpa, you know, was in there. There's there guys who died building that thing, and, and, and just look at that. Just look at what, what, what great-grandpa built. Think of the satisfaction of, of building something that great, let alone of building the temple where God's presence would come. Over the years of being a pastor, I, I got to know some of the saints who built this church. It started in 1959. I got to you know, meet and hang out with the original pastor who planted this church. And, and every now and again, some of them will be passing through town or whatever, and they'll come here to church on a Sunday morning, and, and they'll find themselves in the old pictures on the wall. That's me! You know, and, and, and they look at this place, and the joy that they get when they come here. They say, we, we, built, we built this. That building wasn't even there. That was the first, that, that building right there, what's now our preschool, that was the first sanctuary that we built in the 50s. We saved up all of our money, and we gave all of our money, and we built that building. We sold our, our homes, and we gave up our stuff, and then we built that building, and we, 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 we sacrificed for this. And that sacrifice continues. I think of guys around here, I think of Mike Dolan. He, he left his job to come and work here. I, I left my, my job. I had a sweet city job, came to work here. Pastor Tony left his job, came to work here. There's other things that we could be doing, but, but we walked away from it and said, oh, the joy of serving him. Oh, the joy to be old men one day and say, look at what God has built here. Think of our own Marlon and Jimena, who sold everything that they had, and they packed all their possessions in, in but a few boxes and backpacks, and they moved to the mission field, and they're bringing the gospel to a people who had never heard it. The, the world would say, why would you do that? You had a nice place in Southern California. Your friends are here. Your family is here. What are you leaving it for? We're leaving it for treasures in heaven. We're doing this for treasures in heaven. We're doing this because our God is our satisfaction. And the joy of serving him, that gives us satisfaction. That leads us to the next point from satisfaction to service. Draw your eyes at the text in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring the, the wood, rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and, and, and be glorified, says the Lord of hosts. In Ezra, we read about the wood. The people acquired wood. Haggai says, go get, go get the wood. Go get it. Uh, it could be that the wood was gone already. Follow me really quickly and, and remind yourself of some things in Ezra. In Ezra, we read that they were getting wood from Lebanon. Here we see the command to go get the wood in the mountains. Uh, that area is filled with, with timber. These aren't the cedars of Lebanon. Unless, of course, maybe they've hid them in the forest or something like this. 
Now, Jerusalem has a beautiful forest. In fact, if you, if you go with us on one of our Israel trips, the forest is, is amazing. If, if you go by yourself on another trip or whatever, just make sure you go to the forest in Jerusalem. And there's a, a little place in the forest in Jerusalem that you want to visit. It's a place called Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is a, is a memorial to the victims of the Holocaust. Speaking of the Holocaust, Haggai just survived the Holocaust. The people lived through exile. Hitler is Babylon. God rescued them from Babylon. And he brought them to build this temple. And they get there. And, and they don't do it. And then God says, I love you. I love you. I'm sending you Haggai. Go get the wood. Go do this. Get to service. The building of the temple is for the pleasure of God. That I may be pleased, we read of God's pleasure. In Psalm 135, verse 6, we read, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven, on earth, in the seas, and the deeps. God does what he pleases. He, he's, he's pleased with our praise. He's pleased with the building of a place of, of worship. It is the respect and the honor that he is due. He has made humanity in his image. We were made to mirror him. We were made for worship. We, we're, we're little worshiping creatures that were made to give him all honor and due. But in our sin, we've turned to our panels. In our sin, we've listened to the serpent. In our sin, we've compromised ourselves. But in God's pleasure, he saves and he forgives and he washes. And in God's presence, we read Psalm 1611, there's fullness of joy, pleasures evermore. There's satisfaction in serving him. You, you will not regret if you come to serve him with a pure heart. You will not regret, you will not regret if he is your ultimate pleasure. There's a saying, in fact, that if you're not getting what you really need from Jesus, others will disappoint you. If you're not getting what you really need from Jesus, even the church of Jesus will disappoint you. This is not to say that the church shouldn't be caring for people's needs. It is to say, however, that when I'm filled up on him, when I'm filled up in his satisfaction, his pleasure, and his service, the things that otherwise would discourage me or divide me are rendered impotent. They have no power. They can't even tempt you because the greatest pleasure always wins. We do what pleases us. That's why we do what we do. Pleasure is empowering us for the service of God. Pleasure also exposes us and shows what really matters to us. In the case of Israel, it was their panels that mattered and, and not the temple. Jesus, I quoted from earlier, where he cautioned against, uh, 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 you know, collecting earthly treasures in Matthew 6. He finishes that by saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those are sobering words to show us what's in the heart, to show us what we need redemption from. We need God to rescue us from ourselves and to make him our supreme treasure. Verse 9 of, of Haggai, you look for so much, behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs his own house. God's blowing it away, not because he's being petty, it is an act of love. He's not letting them be satisfied in their stuff. Your stuff is drawing you away from me. I'm not going to let you be happy with your panels. I'm calling you to a greater pleasure. Why, why would you eat that when you can have this? Why would you want that when you can have this? Why would you give yourselves to serving these things when you can serve me, when you can have joy in me? You know, joy is like a shadow that walks around with someone who has a heart of worship, a heart of grace, a heart of, of gratitude. It's like a shadow that just goes with you and carries you. Uh, you carry it in the light, though. The darkness will come and try and take it from you. 
We must run to the light. Israel must run to the mountains. Haggai says, it's time. Therefore, verse 10, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. Which brings me to the next sub-point on the outline, satisfaction, service, and now sky. We, we read here that their sin is actually bringing devastation to the land itself. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 11. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on the ground that produces it, on men, on cattle, on all the labor of your hands. This was to be a land of milk and honey, but now it's a, a land of drought and dirt and dust. It goes to show that uh, contrary to our modern individualistic culture, sin is not just a personal thing between me and God. To be sure, it is at its center. But my behavior will ripple out. I call it horizontal homardiology. What I do is going to rip out into creation. In this case, it's impacting the land itself. It's impacting men and cattle and labor. Their sinfulness, their consumption, their consumerism was bringing, was bringing a devastating effect out. And so God comes, the word comes, and, and says, consider your ways. The third point on your outline, we see God changing their wills. Wills change. Word comes, ways considered. Third point, wills change. In verse 14, draw your eyes at the text. You see the Lord stirring in the heart of a man to accomplish his will. We see God changing the heart and stirring in them. We're reminded in reading this of 2 Timothy 2.25 that it's God who grants us repentance. Of Romans 2.4 that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Of Acts 11.18 where we read of salvation and we read this, that when they heard these things they fell silent, they glorified God saying God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is the subpoint under wills changed. Verse 12 we see repentance or penitence. Verse 12, draw your eyes at the text. Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. The Lord always has a remnant. They're always marked by repentance. And Martin Luther's famous 95 Theses, the first of the 95 Theses is this, and I quote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And by way of penitence, they are brought to the next subpoint, presence. Draw your eyes at the text, verse 13. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. God promises to be with them. And notice in verse 15, there is no mention of, there, in verse 15, there is a mention of Darius again. As if to say, don't worry about him because I'm with you. I will carry you. You will go by my power. So we move here from penitence to presence. Thirdly, to power. Draw your eyes at the final verses of the chapter. So the Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah. The spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. The spirit of all the people, the remnant. They came and they worked for the house of the Lord, the God their hosts, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of, of Darius the king. God is stirring in their hearts. They're getting up to go. This begins on the 24th day of the sixth month, which tells us that it's been several weeks after the initial oracle of Haggai that we read about in verses 1 through 11. So, so they, they then move to action, and they start getting wood and stuff. This is incredible. If you know the Hebrew prophets, you, you, you should be stunned by what we're reading here in this verse about how they're being stirred. Because a lot of the Hebrew prophets like Ezekiel, are sent to people 
who are blind and deaf, who will not change. God tells Ezekiel, I'm sending you, and they're not going to listen. Your, your ministry, Jeremiah, it's going to be horrible. You're going to be weeping the whole time. You will have no fruit. They won't listen. I'm sending you anyway. Haggai, I'm sending you, and I'm going to change their hearts through you. Oh, to have a ministry like Haggai, this little tiny book inside of the Hebrew Bible, and God used him to change their hearts. God was moving in this moment of history where they were so distracted by, by stuff, God moves and calls them to himself. In the age of the church, we too, we, we, we can run the risk of missing what he's called us for. Our quest for stuff, our sin, our idolatry, our bad attitudes, our busyness, our brokenness. We can miss the service of the Lord that's right in front of us. Maybe it's not the panels in our homes. We're in a culture that's addicted to workaholism. Maybe it's work. And so you're always at work and you never have time for Christ's mission. Maybe it's entertainment. Uh, you binge watch shows for hours on end and then complain that there's no time to serve. It's, it's priority. It's, it's making time, Haggai is showing us. I recently was with a group of pastors, and we've all noticed this phenomenon in various churches of people who come late to church with a Starbucks cup in their hand. You go, you go like, you know, I'm not picking on Starbucks or getting coffee before you come to church, but when you come late with it, it says something about what's important, right? What's important? I want to be here to worship Jesus with the church. I want to be here to have communion, which we're going to do right now. I, I've been looking forward to this all week. There's nothing I'd rather be doing right now than, than this and thinking about him and doing it with you guys. Nothing Nothing should stand in the way of us building our temple in this age, the body of Christ. We've come off of the heels of 2020 and 2021, where we're cloth, where a, a, a dumb mask has actually stood in the way of, of people gathering and coming and worshiping and being filled with joy. The things that can so quickly get in the way and draw us away from what we are doing right now and distracting us. Instead of just laying it down and saying, Lord, you're so right. I let that thing get in the way. I let that thing cause me to be late from the most important thing that you laid before me in the week. Israel was late. But you know what? God's gracious, so it's never too late. You come. He forgives you. He washes you. You come. You consider your ways. The message of Haggai is the message that we preach today. Consider your ways. The Apostle Paul in Corinthians 11, when he was talking to them about communion, he said, 1 Corinthians 11, a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink the cup. So we come and we examine our ways. We come with this, with this, with this little cup. We, we open the top. And we have this, this bread. We say, Lord, I want to examine my ways. Search my heart, Lord. And I see in my heart sin. I see in my heart things that don't represent him. And then I have this little bread and I'm reminded his heart was pure. And he gave himself for me. And God's thoughts towards me will never change for I am in him. He is the beloved. And in him I have been made beloved. As we eat the bread, think of the sacrifice that was given for you. Consider your ways. Think carefully about what you're doing. 
Think about what stands in the way of you coming, of serving, of giving. How's your, how's your offering? Are you giving? How, how's your time? Are you in the word? How, how, how's your mission? Are you sharing Christ with the lost? Think about where you're going. Think about what you're living for. Think about what makes you happy. Is it sacrifice and giving that makes you happy? Or are you settling for just spare change? Squeezing God into the schedule as opposed to making him Lord over the whole calendar. Again, if we rightly consider our ways, we'll feel a sense of condemnation. I don't, get, I don't make him first. I don't make him center. And then I see the cup and I'm reminded of his grace and his forgiveness and his pardon. Let's come in repentance. Let's drink the cup and remember the one who has come for us. You can come, come late with the Starbucks cup and then you're met with this cup that's never late. That's always there. That's always available. That, that, is, that, is, that is here reminding us that we were not worthy, but behold the one who has glorified himself and his worth in this great sacrifice for us. The temple was a place of sacrifice that looked forward to the ultimate sacrifice that would come. The temple that these people were building in Ezra and Haggai, that's the temple that Jesus would come to. They were setting up something historic. They had no idea of the divine calling that was given to them. And so too, we in this age, we have no idea of the people who God's bringing in our path. We, know, we have no idea of the glory that God is going to bring to himself in Delray Church. We have no idea what this month holds as maybe transitions to going back inside are going to be and the fruit that God is going to bring through the labor of 2020 and 2021. May God be glorified and may we consider our ways before him and seek his grace. Let's pray and sing as we wind down our service. Lord, I thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. That while we sit around looking at our panels, you would come and snatch us away and show us something infinitely more beautiful than paneling, the face of your Son in the flesh. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your pardon. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you would die in our place. We thank you that you would call us into service. We're not worthy to serve you. We're not worthy to be a pastor. We're not worthy to be a church. And yet you saw fit to call us out of our spiritual exile and make us into your body here in Los Angeles. Empower us, I pray. Work in our hearts here and now, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen.